0: Hello and welcome back to the Gucci podcast. This episode sponsored by Gucci Equilibrium is brought to you by Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform that reimagines the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. Hosted by Riley Reed, her podcast series brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic selection of female visionaries who achieve fulfillment and personal success despite trauma through grit, discernment, and exceptional discoveries. The latest guest is Nicole Cardoza, an award-winning social entrepreneur, public speaker, mindfulness instructor, and author, whose work examines the racial and health inequalities in society and offers direct, tangible resources to close the wellness gap.
1: Hey everyone, it's your hostess, Riley Reid. In a short few minutes, you'll hear a live recording from this past Sunday at South by Southwest in conversation with visionary Nicole Cardoza. This episode is warmly sponsored by Gucci Equilibrium. Gucci Equilibrium is dedicated to gender equality, social justice, sustainability, and positive change for people and our planet. Powered by creativity and collaboration, Gucci Equilibrium is reducing our environmental impact in protecting nature while also prioritizing inclusivity and respect so that all people are free to express their authentic, diverse selves. Can I get an amen? Amongst their many pursuits, Gucci is committed to UN Women's Generation Equality Action Coalitions to provide funding to feminist movements and leaders around the world. Their most recent capsule collection, under the banner of Chime for Change, is centered around the theme of generation equality, amplifying the calls for accelerated progress and action toward a gender-equal future. You can learn more about Gucci Equilibrium at equilibrium.gucci.com. And a little birdie told me that they just opened a brand new store right here in Austin, Texas. So, I am Riley Reed. I am the creator and your hostess for the Woke Beauty podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here today on a Sunday. I consider today a day of rest. So, for me, if you're here, uh, that means that you feel restful. At least that's how I interpret it. So very appreciative. Also super appreciative to Nicole, who agreed to be here with me like so last minute. It means a lot to me, this pulled together in a kind of a wild way. So I am so grateful. I always say thank you is never enough, but hopefully you can like feel how grateful I am. Today, I really want to reveal how Nicole disrupts spaces while also maintaining her own well-being and ethos, and specifically around wellness, how she, you challenges the industry while also like being well. I love your tagline, your mission to reclaim wellness, the reclamation of wellness, like that that's just such a beautiful way of describing it. And I find that um, everything seems to really intersect in your life. There's a lot of crossover, and that clarity is really. I don't know. It's very calming. I think especially in a charged space where we are oftentimes silenced as black women to read about you and to be in your presence and feel at ease is like really special and meaningful. So Nicole is an investor, a writer, a magician, an entrepreneur. You really spend a lot of your time uplifting others, which is why I want to know how you uplift yourself. So I would love to hear your interpretation of what you do, not just what you do in work, but what you do in life, where we jump into my, my usual favorite question.
2: Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Honestly, this is so fun. And hello to everybody watching online. Um, my name is Nicole Cardoza. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I, like you said, run Reclamation Ventures, which is a venture studio committed to reclaiming our right to be well. Um, so there's a bunch of different projects in there. Uh, we run something called the Anti-Racism Daily, which is a daily newsletter to dismantle white supremacy. Uh, we run uh, well a which is a meditation and mindfulness app for kids. I recently published a book on that as well. Um, and we have a fund called the Reclamation Ventures Fund. And so we invest a percentage of all of our revenue in direct support to other wellness leaders, making wellness more accessible across the country. So that's been um, really rewarding.
1: Okay. So to kick things off, let's kind of rewind. Mm-hmm. Where were you born and how do you identify with that place?
2: Mm. I was born in southeastern Connecticut in like a very rural um, <laughs> kind of podunk town. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I resonate with it because I'm definitely like a small town girl at heart and love nature and farming and can't wait to be living on a lot more land. So that definitely is a, how I stay grounded. I also got to see a lot of the intersections of, uh, health disparities, both like with what my family has experienced, um, living very close to tribal lands and watching um, both the Pequot and the Mohegan tribes uh, reclaim their land and their right to have their land. And a lot of that work happened um, in the 80s right before I was born and and certainly through today. Also, just like being in between two big cities was really interesting. We're Mm -hmm. at equal distances from New York and Boston. And Mm -hmm. so I got to see the juxtaposition of life in, in both of those areas and lived in New York City for a really long time so definitely experienced that too
1: do you go back to that region often
2: all my family's there so yeah I do go back and see it pretty often So in a way to always be home
1: yeah how do you feel like you've integrated like your childhood and your experiences there into your like modern day life
2: Hmm. I definitely have adopted a lot of the practices that I loved when I was a kid. Like being a magician was always like my little girl dream. so that is a very tangible way. I'm like living into that small town life um or at least like what I felt when I was in that small town, but to literally kind of like reflect that um, that lived experience in here today, like living in Austin. Um, it was really important for me to buy a house. I had like a big backyard. I'm putting a greenhouse in right now, which is exciting. And so it reminds me of being a kid and playing in our backyard. And we had this like little toy Fisher Price house. And I feel like my greenhouse is some kind of embodiment of that.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so neat. I love that visual. I was going to ask you because I know you just bought a house mm-hmm. in like pretty central Austin, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how How you are making that space work for you, seeing that it might not be your ideal space. Yeah. And I'm wondering also like how you plan if you plan soon on transitioning out into more space. I imagine that means going to a more rural place
2: yeah Yeah, I I love my house it's ideal for what it is it's an incredible location in Austin um, and it's in a a formerly black and like all historically black neighborhood and so I love that I get to add to that history Mm -hmm. Um, I really want farmland one day which isn't as like attainable (laughs) in central east Austin Um, so I'm hoping that will happen at one point in my life in my lifetime Um, but for now I'm really grounded and settled and like you like you asked, like, to me, it's like, how can I make sure that the outside is in? Uh, yeah. So I, I renovated the house. And a big thing that we focused on was, like, maximizing the light, taking out the ceiling, extent, like, mm. adding these really beautiful exposed beams. And so the house just feels much more grounded and rural, I think, than at least how I originally purchased it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How do you... Um relate like that desire to be outside and to bring outside in with your work?
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I think a big part of reclaiming our right to be well here in the United States is reclaiming our relationship to land. And I I can only speak from like the Black experience and specifically my African-American side. Um, But I think so many marginalized groups that have roots here are reclaiming their right to be in the land, um, to have the freedom to literally walk outside in public places, to be able to own their land, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to use their land in the way that's right, farm on their land in the indigenous ways, um, for example. And so I do think that our relationship to this planet uh, is incredibly important when we think about reclaiming our relationship to our health and well-being, um, especially because we know that we're living on a planet that, uh, (laughs) I was going to say a dying planet, but certainly the conditions of this planet that we've excelled are not creating conditions that work for humans. And so um, it's I, I, it's hard to think about wellness just indoors. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we have a lot of like cute little wellness studios that are like, you know, temperature controlled and all of that. And that's amazing. But it's I think it does take to really uh, reckon with the walls that we've put up, r- quite literally, with our relationship to the land, and then figuratively, what kind of containers are we creating that keeps us uh, detached from some of the larger issues that we're experiencing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love how you said that. I mean, you talk just temperature control like that in and of itself is superficial. Yeah, you know, yeah. so necessary
2: um, in some ways, right? Like yeah. you're living in a, in a global it warming course so of summer. That. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, It makes me think I did a self-portrait series a couple of years ago and all of the images were outside Mm -hmm. and it was in a way a claiming of space Mm -hmm. in that like historically being outside for black people was not like a good thing. Mm -hmm. Like that was labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And so to be outside and to be well and to be happy and to fully embody like the environment is just such of reclaiming like it's it's such a way of manifesting like this is where I belong despite everything going on in the world you know um you are an entrepreneur and i think if if you're an entrepreneur and you have businesses that are alive <laughs> especially after a certain amount of years that means you are a successful entrepreneur <laughs> and so you know i it's a, I think that's a big deal. I think it's something that needs to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. um, especially for us, for a business to sustain. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm wondering, I imagine you've had a lot of ideas mm-hmm. over the course of your life and that some of them might have come to fruition. Some of them might not have. Mm-hmm. Some of them might have just sat on paper. Yeah. Um, and so I want to know how you've brought your dreams to life and and why you chose certain ideas
2: over others potentially. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I have a few successful businesses, which is really exciting. I have many more quote unquote failed businesses, I guess you would say too. So I want to name that. Um, I think part of the reason I have multiple businesses that are still around today is because I've tried so many different ideas and I um, am never afraid to just put out a new idea. I'm launching something new this week, actually. And so um I will try to get as quickly as possible to launch because I think that it's a powerful way to be in relationship um, with a community that you want to reach and involve them in the ideation phase. Um, And some things just haven't worked out because it wasn't the right timing. Some things didn't work out because I didn't like them. Some things didn't work out because it was a half baked idea that didn't Mm -hmm. have, like, you know, didn't have legs underneath it. Um, But I think the ones that I still have today are a blend of companies that I felt really strongly needed to exist. And I was like, I hope somebody's out there doing it. And if not, I guess I'm going to have to start. Um, Timing, I think, is really important. So launching something in a landscape where the market's ready for it and Mm -hmm. hungry for it. Um, And then... Uh, who can I like be in relationship with to help that company grow? Because I think it's very easy to start something and it's much more difficult to sustain it. And so it's like having the right team, having the right community and being willing to allow the company to evolve over time um, is a very delicate dance that, uh, but is necessary.
1: Like you said, it's so hard to, survive and thrive. Um, And and I think that that's oftentimes not discussed that entrepreneurship is in and of itself a risk. I'm curious, you said, um, you said the right people, the right time, Mm -hmm. the right spaces, what does right look like to you?
2: Yeah. Right. Is subjective. Right. So it's like my definition of right and your definition of right could be entirely different. Um, Right. Yeah. I think think a lot of entrepreneurs that were like, oh, this is the way to do it because we're surrounded or at least over the past few years, I feel like we've been surrounded by all of these stories of entrepreneurs succeeding and building these big, beautiful, dreamy kind of companies. I find it ironic that I feel like this past year, we've actually been seeing a lot of these same entrepreneur stories that like of how it all fell apart, right? Mm-hmm. Like watching the Elizabeth Holmes documentary, for example. So I, I, I mean to say that it's right for you and not necessarily right for what you see on TV or like who's getting celebrated in 30 Under 30. That's not like, yeah. that doesn't have to be your process. Um, yeah. So, right is just, I think the best ideas are the ones that can be bigger than yourself Mm. as the founder, as the entrepreneur. And so for me, that's like the rightness. Both of the companies that are in my portfolio, the two strongest ones that I have that have been around the longest are Wella Mental and the Anti-Racism Daily. The ARD only started in June of 2020. So it's super new, but um, very fast growing. And in both of those. talk (laughs) about
1: timing. Yeah. So in both
2: of those, they kind of I kind of started them by accident. Um, well a mental, I started volunteering in schools, teaching yoga, more um, more classrooms in the schools that I was working with wanted the work. And then it was a matter of, OK, how do we create a system and a structure that supports it? And so pretty soon that idea is like bigger than the one person that was volunteering their time teaching, right? It's like mm-hmm. I have to find other instructors. We have to get the right curriculum. Like if there's a way that we could train school teachers that are interested in doing this, that's far more sustainable Mm -hmm. than bringing in outside volunteers and instead of buying yoga mats like maybe there's a way we could build a system where we could redistribute gently used yoga mats to classrooms across the country so it just became like this much larger idea very quickly Um, and when it does and you can have more people get involved it creates that shared accountability that ensures that the idea isn't going to fail. Right. Yes. Because it's not just mine anymore. Yeah. You know, it's not just this thing in my head or this cute little logo I designed. It becomes this this community. It's a part of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with the ARD. It's like if you're if you can put something out there that people need and they can use and it can be relevant and, and accessible for them um, and elevate like marginalized voices in the in the process, then hopefully it'll grow. So yeah. Yeah. But it's it's really nuanced, you know, and mm-hmm. you could do something and 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 I've seen this like have a company put it out there it doesn't work go back, change the name, maybe you know, uh, align with a different target market, put it out 6 months later and just because something's happening during that time in the world that we live in, it could be it could have a whole different kind of track, so.
1: Yeah. Couple questions like, yeah. that aren't on my list that came out of that, <laughs> which I knew would happen. Um, So, y- Youth Foster used to exist. Yoga Foster. Yeah. yeah yoga Foster. Yeah. Sorry. I know okay. it was in part for youth. So, that's, mm-hmm. I'm like, I've got a lot of thoughts in my head. So, it was Yoga Foster. Did that become well and mental? Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm curious, how did you transition?
2: Yeah. So, I started Yoga Foster in 2014. Um, or at least worked on it full-time in 2014. It really started in like 2010, but at that time it was really hands-on. So we were doing, you know, trainings with school teachers to bring yoga into their classrooms. We were collecting gently used yoga mats. We were doing donation-based yoga classes. We'd have a percentage of proceeds from major brands like Lululemon and Core Power Yoga. We'd be at festivals talking about our work and everything was very physical. We knew that we wanted to change the branding and change the name because there hasn't been an ongoing fight around any kind of religious, spiritual race, uh, conversations around race, kind of backlash has been growing in schools before. For critical race theory, which I think a lot of people don't know, and so um, we had a lot of pushback about yoga, which is often is 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 a you know is tied to spiritual practices in multiple communities around the world having that come in as like a religious practice. So, but most of our teachers are using it as part of wellness. So we're like, okay, changing the name to Well and Mental will make it a lot more easy for our school teachers to be able to use these resources in their classroom without getting that initial pushback. Mm-hmm. So we knew the name was changing and we hadn't done any brandings. So we're like, this will be really fun because we've really never given it life in this way. And so we had the the thought to change the name and launch relaunch our identity In March of 2020. And so March of 2020 is when COVID hit. In case y'all don't remember, that's still very top of mind to me. And so very quickly, a lot of things changed for us as a company. Um, First of all, teachers weren't doing anything in their classrooms anymore, including yoga. Second of all, there was no yoga classes happening, right? So um, all of the yoga festivals for that summer were canceled. So very quickly, we lost like our customer base, where our practices were happening. We lost our funders. Everything kind of fell apart. And so... It wasn't necessarily us deciding, like, "Oh, we're gonna change things up." We were like, "How can we be in relationship best with what our teachers need, with what our students need?" Um, Which we were kind of disconnected from because we really worked with teachers, yeah. And like, how are we gonna stay in connected with this wellness community that's funding all of the work? You know, most Mm -hmm. of our programs in schools were completely free or low cost. They were all funded by, you know, people that love, you know, traditional kind of like wellness practices. So we did a lot of listening, you know, like interviewing teachers, interviewing parents, talking to people that we knew. I was writing a children's book at the time, so I was already in relationship with families, which was great. And they're like, we just need simple we need to be able to just like put on a video. And it's like, okay, well, we never did video work. So I think in the space of like six weeks, we launched the new brand name because it was a great time because there was like no pending assets out. We had no campaigns going on. Um, we changed the brand name and we also launched an app. So we have a web app and a mobile app that has all of the practices that we would teach teachers to do recorded by not just our staff, but other volunteers um, from the wellness community that didn't have as much going on, right? We put all of it um, together in English and in Spanish so that teachers could send this home for their parents to be able to use with their kids or caretakers to be able to use with their kids. And so it was a huge shift, right? Like it was like, okay, how are we going to respond to this space? But I think what we were talking about before, it's important to figure out how to be flexible as an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. right? Because quite frankly, our company wasn't needed You know, like if we were like, this is what we're going to do and we're going to stick to this, like we wouldn't we didn't know it in March 2020. But like schools are still struggling to go back to some of the programs that they had before that time. Right. And who knows if in a way it will ever go back there. You know, I don't think we'll ever be able to send gently used yoga mats to schools with the heightened concerns justifiably over like germs and things like that. You know, so, um, yeah, it was a wild ride.
1: Yeah. Something that came up for me is that it felt like you weren't desperate, but curious. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no like frantic, like concern over how can we like make sure that we survive. But instead it was like, what can we continue to provide despite the hurdles? Yeah. Um, And I think that mentality is really important. I found within myself that when I'm desperate, when I come from a place of fear, Mm -hmm. like I'm not I'm not speaking truth. I'm not. Fully leaning into potential, you know? So I do think that that's really important to note that, like, curiosity and again, the pursuit of like taking the focus away from self. And on that note, something else that came up was that when it comes to a brand, now we want to humanize as much as possible. And so a lot of the, you know, advice is make yourself front and center, like mm-hmm. make your your face visible. Mm-hmm. And I feel like your online presence and even just the way you're speaking today, you do have this ability to disconnect your ego mm-hmm. and yourself from what you've created mm-hmm. and and your stuff, your stuff for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, is still thriving. Yeah. So how have you done that? How have you how have you created that separation? Um, and still made what you've created and what is existing tangible and personal and accessible.
2: Yeah, that was really conscious. I used to be very front and center with a lot of my work. Um And did like all the campaigns and the promotions and the things, you know, and the magazines and like, and I'm really deeply grateful for that because we know, especially in this creator economy that we live in, that's like very necessary for a lot of businesses and certainly really valuable. Um, And so in many ways, taking a conscious step back was also rooted in the privilege that I have, that I have scaled brands that have multiple staff members and like can live without me. Um, But it was a part of how I got here too. So I need mm-hmm. to name that, but um, it's really taxing. And it was really taxing in 2020 leading an anti-racism blog, um, newsletter, you know, platform, you know, we had at the time, um, I think we had like 20, 250,000 followers on our, on our Instagram account right when we launched. And it's, it was really taxing. It was actually unsafe, you know, getting doxxed and having people reach out and be like, I know where you live and on things like that. So it was conscious. In many ways, it was necessary. Um, I hope that we move as a society away from kind of idolizing founders and individuals because it does carry this like personal responsibility mindset um, that, you know, the company is based on the star, right? Mm -hmm. And usually that star is the CEO and everybody else is secondhand. Um, Whereas like we're at least our work is like we're really trying to build collectives of people with shared accountability, and that's also shared responsibility. And so it takes decentering this the individual to be able to elevate everybody around. I also think that entrepreneurs, especially marginalized entrepreneurs, were oftentimes asked to like cater our trauma for attention. So oftentimes I'll get asked to do things not because they're really interested in my work, but just because I'm a black woman or a black queer woman or whatever. Um, And that's not really doing my work or me a service. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would much prefer for somebody to reach out, not because I have a lot of followers on Instagram and not because I have this super cute little outfit, but like because (laughs) Because you know, because they actually want it to have the work be centered.
1: Yeah. And Um, center you as a human. Yeah, you as a story Yep, and not you as a label, Yeah, you know? Yeah, Yeah. you
2: know, because the worst part is like when people are like, oh, she's the marginalized person I can bring into the room, it's oftentimes rooted in their idea of like whiteness as well. So like, yes, I'm a black woman and yes, I'm queer, but I'm also able-bodied. I'm a size zero. I'm relatively light-skinned. Like, I've gone to college. I've had multiple successful companies. And so I take, I can take up a lot of space for people who are more marginalized than me that actually should be in the spotlight right mm. who are actually experiencing some of the things that i talk about every day in my work um, that i have the privilege not to do anymore i mean i just bought a house in east austin i'm incredibly privileged and so yeah there's i shouldn't be centered on a lot of these spaces especially if you're looking just to tokenize any of us you know right. what i mean
1: yes this episode is sponsored by gucci equilibrium Gucci Equilibrium is dedicated to gender equality, social justice, sustainability, and positive change for people and our planet. Powered by creativity and collaboration, Gucci Equilibrium is reducing our environmental impact and protecting nature while also prioritizing inclusivity and respect so that all people are free to express their authentic, diverse selves. Amongst their many pursuits, Gucci is committed to UN Women's Generation Equality Action Coalitions to provide funding to feminist movements and leaders around the world. Their most recent capsule collection under the banner of Chime for Change is centered around the theme of generation equality, amplifying the calls for accelerated progress and action toward a gender-equal future. You can learn more about Gucci Equilibrium at equilibrium.gucci.com you've talked about you know reclamation of wellness it's kind of like front and center I wanted to talk about like the process in your work and the Mm -hmm. intentionality in that like inner and the intersectionality I know that like you mentioned a couple of your more successful ventures kind of happened by accident Mm -hmm. how did it come to fruition like how have you how have you created these different Aspects, these different entities, like I see them as compartments. Mm-hmm. Um, but been able to like un- unionize them.
2: Yeah, I I really just follow my gut. Honestly, you know, my first company, Well and Mental, that just felt like a need. And I was just, I, I don't know how I ended up doing that work and, and being invited to teach yoga at that school. Um, but the way that it grew just felt very natural. Like it's like, of course, there's like a huge community of you know people that love wellness that um over index in terms of cost um not just cost but like um Salary. They're usually Mm -hmm. from a higher socioeconomic status. They, on average, have four yoga mats. They um, also tend to be much more socially conscious than the rest of the population. Of course, they want to support something like this. It cost us $20 to bring yoga to one student for the entire school year with our old model. And that's roughly the cost of an average yoga class, or it used to be. Because again, this was our old model a few years back. And so God knows what it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so (laughs) it's like inflation. Yeah. So it's like, of course, it makes sense. If we did a donation based yoga class and got 23 people in it, which is the average size of the schools in the community that we are working in, we could fund that whole program for a year. And that takes an hour and it doesn't take much, you know, from our, our community of supporters who are likely going to pay for that class anyway. So I say that all is like, it just felt like there was abundance around putting this together and it felt very natural. Um, And same thing with the ARD. Um, And so those two were the two companies that I had and the other project I was working on around that time I started in 2019 was the fund, which was how can I get more resources to people like me doing cool work like Well and Mental that's mm. bringing yoga into schools or holding grief um, circles for people that have lost, um, you know, kids, you know, to gun violence or whatever that wellness looks like for that community and for that individual. How can I get more resources in people's hands. So when I started to look at all of these things together, because people will often be like, oh my gosh, you do so many things and they're all so different. It's like, no, we're all looking at like, how do we reclaim our inherent right to be well from many different aspects of care? Um, And how can we as a studio invest in all of the things that we need? Because we need to be talking about racism and white supremacy. Like that is the water that we swim in, right? So until we address that, we no matter how many services there are, how many fucking yoga studios exist in America, like we will not be well. Not to say yoga makes us well, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. oftentimes we think about wellness as like access to direct services and not dismantling and reimagining the systems that we live in mm-hmm. that cause us to be unwell. So we have to be looking at that. We have to be offering direct services, right? That's a part of it. And making sure that things like meditation and mindfulness and any other kind of program is more accessible, which is what a small chunk, right? Well, a mental does a small part of that, right? Creating culturally responsive practices for marginalized kids. Because um, most of the meditation and mindfulness content out there is catering to a certain demographic, as I'm sure we know. We have to be taking care of the people doing this work we have to be giving them money to be able to support them and other kinds of support, right? So that's what our fund does. That makes a lot of sense. And through magic, which is like the growing part and some fun stuff coming out there, it's like, how are we actually gonna cultivate imagination? Because we don't invest in imagination as a cultural skill here Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we can dismantle all we want, but if we are not rooted in the capacity to dream and believe and suspend disbelief, Mm -hmm. then we're not going to create those futures. And so I'm really interested in stage magic as one of the many ways that we could encourage people to dream a bit bigger. So that's what we're thinking about as the studio grows. It's like, what other pieces of the puzzle can we um, invest in? Some of them are similar, like other people doing direct services. Um, Some of them are really different. So looking at like other ways that we can dismantle, um, looking at how can we look at, uh, we're thinking about um, how can we kind of dismantle healthcare and its attachment Mm -hmm. to employment in a way. So, Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, something that came up for me when you were talking about imagination and magic and the importance of that, I thought of like Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. She talked a lot about how her books were rooted in fiction because she needed to take the black community somewhere else Mm -hmm. and how she had respect for writers like bell hooks and people who are more anthropological. We need those stories. Yeah. But we also need to be transported to a space of joy mm-hmm. and, you know, to a space of like other, mm-hmm. you know, like what what could we be? What could exist that might not be here now? Yeah. And so I I love that just kind of that abstract version of what you do. I feel like those are those are really interesting conversations with one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, And I also saw the surge of passion when you were talking about the numbers and Mm -hmm. talking about what is literal and what exists and what we can read on paper. Yeah. I imagine it's been really frustrating, at least it has been for me, you know, to have experienced summer 2020, Mm -hmm. you know, and to have seen the surge of interest and engagement and growth. And then for that to just kind of like slide back down to um, where's the relevancy anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I... I think it's a lot to carry to continue that conversation, especially when there are really only so few still paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say so few, I mean of the majority. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious, like, how you deal with that frustration? Like, mm-hmm. how do you have the passion without, you know, resentment?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm always looking back to, like, the civil rights leader's. Um, our past specifically because they've been through this like we've had throughout history so many of these like really big kind of like upswells of support Mm -hmm. and engagement that's followed by years if not decades of relative complacency and again talking about like the majority right um certainly not people have been doing this day in day out and so i think a lot about that like i can imagine it was really frustrating but we still talk about singular moments that happened 60 years ago as some of the most like tumultuous or pivotal and tumultuous times of our lives. And I think that those moments lay the groundwork for the work that happens decades further, right? Um we, what we need is let the people that are in the most, the highest positions of power really to change their ways and people that don't have power or don't have power within the system that we live in, within dominant culture, to remember that they can do as much as possible in their own communities to make change to. Like we need everybody at all stages. And so um, it might, sometimes it is really discouraging to see, okay, like 2020 happened and now 2022, we've definitely lost a lot of engagement, right? And I think, especially being young, you know, a lot of people, especially on my team, I think about like we're, you know, in our 20s and our 30s and we didn't live in the movements in the past. And so it's like, it can feel like it's a lot. But if you look at like how far we've come as a nation, I think that this work is important to carry in day out, day in, day out. It might not feel like, you know, the entire country protesting every single day. But if we can encourage one person to take the most simplest action in their own community, then we're doing good work. And Mm so you know, we see that with the newsletter too. It's definitely not getting all the fanfare that it did in summer 2020, which contributed to how quickly we grow. Right. Um, but our open rates have increased over time, right? Like people are still giving on average as much as they were to the causes that we, we uh, featured two years ago as they are now. Mm-hmm. And we still get those emails from people that are like, hey, I use this toolkit that y'all put together to help change the name of my high school, mm. you know? And so, yes, I don't, maybe we're not going to see the future that we want to see tomorrow. Um, We clearly have a lot more work to do. um, But if we can create a glimmer of that future today, then I've done the best that I can.
1: Yeah, I think highlighting those analytics are really important. Mm -hmm. I think people oftentimes look straight at subscriber rate or follower rate, Mm -hmm. and they forget, like, impressions, or they forget, like, who's coming back to the content, or who is, like... Making it like seep into their own life, you know, Um, and those stories of how it it continues beyond yourself. Again, those are the ones that, you know, we need to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like you've like put the blinders on and ensured that like the things that really matter are in your gaze, you know. Yeah. Yeah. so, I kind of want to bring it to you, to your personal being mm-hmm. and talk about how you have found wellness for your own life and for yourself, um despite all of the work and passion that you put elsewhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think a lot of it has actually been like detaching myself from the traditional wellness industry. I'm grateful that my company chose to pivot Well and Mental in in 2020 because up until that point, it was so connected to me and my story and like the brand partnerships and things like that. I was very embedded in what makes the wellness industry so toxic. And I am grateful I'm not there anymore. Um, So stepping away was a big point. Reclaiming like just my own identity outside of my company is is a really important part of me staying well. I also have to like name I'm like super privileged, right? So it's a lot easier for me to find wellness. Like I have a huge team, which I didn't before. Right. I'm making a great salary, which I wasn't before. Um, I was nomadic and kind of traveling for three years as I was starting things, and I have a house, which is great, and a puppy and a bed, and mm-hmm. like I'm super deeply grateful for that. And so so much of that makes my relationship to my well-being a lot ease more easeful.
1: What would you say are your favorite mental health remedies? So When you're not feeling well, when things are hitting Um, the fan, what do you do to take care of your mind?
2: I have like a morning routine that's really important to me which includes like making coffee because I can't live without it and listening to a playlist and getting showered and getting dressed and getting up I went through a really depressive stage in my life and that it would be characterized by not getting out of bed in the morning and so having this like this is what I do to start my day has been really important to me and whenever I feel like I'm getting into some kind of slump um if for whatever reason burnout whatever um I do that again. So it could be like four o'clock. It could be nine o'clock at night. It doesn't matter. It's like, okay, I'm just going to like make a coffee or go get a coffee. And if I can't get a coffee, I'll go get like, you know, something, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like, you know, get into the routine of like, let me put on this morning playlist that I like, let me get this drink, let me take a shower if I can or change my clothes, like whatever's available. I'm going to start my day over. And that really helps me just like Reclaim my connection to the day and how I want to show up. And then I can do whatever I want. If I still decide I want to like sit on the couch and watch selling sunset for six hours, like great, that's fine. But I've like re I've kind of like reoriented myself, you know, mm-hmm. pulled myself back together and just move forward. That's been really powerful for me. Yeah, I
1: love that reset. Mm-hmm.
2: Just like shower away mm-hmm. whatever's going mm-hmm.
1: on. I know you've written a book, mm-hmm. a children's book. Why did you decide to go
2: youth? Mm. for the book i love kids and my um as a yoga instructor i've always preferred or yoga mindfulness instructor i've always worked with kids and preferred working with kids than i do with grown-ups and so um i loved the idea of writing a kid's book for a long time and i had a publisher reach out to me which gave me like the perfect opportunity and It was, I guess I started it in like 2018. So that's helps with context. But yeah, I think I signed the contract in late 2018. Um, And so my vision was that this you know, this book would be in schools alongside our programs, because so many of the mindfulness and yoga books that I used to work with when I was working with kids in schools, all feature white kids, white able-bodied kids, white skinny kids. And so, um, and like white um, kids that either look like they're a boy or look like a girl, nothing in between. And so I was like, okay, I really want to build a book that feels far more inclusive, right? If If I have the chance to put my little book out there, I can work with an illustrator and put it together in a really beautiful way. And Never got to really see it in schools. We're just starting to look at that stuff for the upcoming school year, just with everything that happened. Um, But yeah, it came out last about a year ago now. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. So... Yeah. yeah, it's really cute. <laughs> yeah. Also writing I'm writing an adult book right now and writing or a, a book for grown ups, I yeah. should say. Not like an adult book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. <laughs> but relatively it's a lot harder, which I know sounds really silly, but like writing a children's book was a, I, I really want to write more. And I yeah. think for me, writing a children's book, um, being able to spend more so much time on the illustrations and um find brevity and simplicity with the words is a great way to get started because it's like, how do you ex- communicate um, breathing in through your nose and breathing out through your mouth in a way that a four-year-old will understand when their parent reads it back to them with a picture of a cat, right? Or a picture of a, at one point it was going to be a monster that didn't have a nose. And then so we're like, okay, how are we going to do this? Right. How all of that the is monster to say, <laughs> Yeah, right. So like all of that is to say, like, if you can write a children's book, you can do a primer to build a story. Hopefully we'll find out to write a book for grown-ups that's going to have a lot more words and no pretty pictures but hopefully can communicate ideas just as clearly. So, I'm glad that I started with that. Um and I'm using the same format like for the book that I'm writing now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, if you're a really good communicator, which which you are, it it's compelling. It's like it's seductive to go into a more verbose like direction, Yeah, you know, and to the person speaking, it feels like clarity. Yeah. But you start to realize that a lot of those sentences can be split up into chapters. Mm-hmm. And you know that that words need to extend and expand and that there's a lot to take in there. Mm-hmm. So I love that like your children's book will inform how you speak to grown ups. Mm-hmm. And I think like there's also something childlike there that mm-hmm. We need to embrace more, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a book that you go back to often?
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, there are probably
1: a thousand, but what comes to mind?
2: (laughs) Gosh, (laughs) you know, I really love Octavia Butler. Mm -hmm. And so I've reread Parable of the Sower now since the pandemic started maybe three times. Wow. And I think one, it just feels like such a mirror (laughs) for the world that we're living in. Um, She knew what was coming. And I um, it's you know, it's all from the perspective of the the main character kind of writing in their journal. And so um, there's just this frank kind of honesty and simplicity that comes through, especially because a lot of the times when she's writing, um, she doesn't have time or uh, space to really dive into the details. It's like, here's what's happening right now. And I want to communicate this. Um, she's writing, you know, in many ways for um well, I don't want to give the whole book away. But anyway. <laughs> the the main character is really writing to leave something behind, yeah. right? It's in and so I think about like what is our role in these times as historians? What is our role this time as curators, as storytellers? How do we um accurately talk about what's happening today? And a lot of what happens in the book is the, is dreaming for the world um that the main character envisions for tomorrow and so i go back to that book a lot um because i feel like i feel like that's my work right now Mm. i feel like that's my responsibility right now um and you know i'm deeply grateful for how octavia butler you know created that space for me to dream
1: yeah that's beautiful Mm -hmm. yeah such an impact Okay, so if you could talk to yourself 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. you could, like, have some kind of conversation with that person, Mm -hmm. what would you tell her? What would you say?
2: Mm -hmm. So I'm 32. So my 22-year-old self, I think I would say, I would just say, like, hang in there. Like, shit was rough. (laughs) 10 years ago. And so I would definitely say hang in there. I think I was looking for validation from people that would never give it to me. And so I'm curious whether or not that would be an appropriate role for me to have for myself, to give myself some kind of like confidence and motivation um, from somebody that knows her better, Mm -hmm. I would hope. (laughs) I think I know myself better 10 years ago than some of the people I was surrounding myself with at the time. And I would tell her to take a nap. (laughs) <laughs> you know and encourage her to to take a little bit of time to take care of herself because i think she really needed to hear that too
1: that was nicole cardoza award winning social entrepreneur public speaker magician and author You can learn more about Nicole at NicoleCardoza.com and find her on Instagram at Nicole A. Cardoza. Much appreciation to you, dear listener, for sharing space with us. Speaking of which, a special thank you to Permanent RCRD right here in Austin for providing a truly beautiful recording studio. We'll be back in two weeks. And remember, you can have a beautiful day even if it's not that beautiful
0: thank you for listening to the Gucci podcast discover more about woke beauty on the episodes notes